Well, let's begin. For the sake of every living being, wisdom, compassion, non-cling awareness, may all beings be delivered into a unbroken continuum of pristine awareness. Well, good. Um, I think today I'll uh, return to some of the um, basics, basics, advanced basics around mindfulness before we, maybe tomorrow or the next day, we move on to the uh, inner aspect of mindfulness again. But I'll, I'll go back and forth. You know, it's just the way I usually... But uh, we'll, we'll start if you have any, uh, any questions. Let me know if you don't hear something because of the surf. It happens to me too. If the surf just knocks out your hearing. Yeah. In meditating, you really find that, that quiet spot and there's nothing going on. It's a, it's a great feeling. Mm. Now, on occasion, over the past years, I'll be walking through my workshop or I'll be on the golf course or be just walking someplace and there's that feeling. It's just pure bliss. But it hasn't been happening in recent months much. What's that all about? Oh, that's a very good question. Marvelous, marvelous, marvelous. Because I'm still doing meditation in the morning and, and you know, I try to do that throughout the day when I'm walking. Yep. I, I, but it hasn't been uh, it's very, it's very uh, easy to explain. It's going to take a little while, and is um, not an, not an answer I want to give uh, quickly, because it's uh, all to do with what we're talking about. It's very important. So that's a great that's a great question. Any any others? <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. <laughs> no, we will come back to that. But that's, that's, that's a really important one. That's very good. Yes? I could feel that when you were talking, when you were explaining about breath, that, that something was happening. I know that my subconsciousness mm. had been chewing on it, mm. but I still, I need someone other than that. You need? I need some, you know, a little bit, if you can maybe go over, maybe sure. not to the same pizza. But that difference between the distinction between breath versus respiration and the performance of what that's really means. Sure. Do you think that's the first time I really heard? Okay. Happy to. Happy to. That'll come out in time. Yes, I. Just speak up. Just speak up. Okay. With regard to meditation. No one simple, there is one simple answer, but that's a very um, high answer. But uh, okay, so all those are related, actually. They're all, all related. So that's good. So you've got three, three. Was there one more? Did you have a question, Lydia? Okay, so there was three, uh, three questions which are absolutely um, interrelated. 
So that's a really good place. And that's all to do with the inner aspect of mindfulness. So happy to do that. So we'll come back. Come back to that. Let's, let's see where we go. I wanted to say a few things about, about the word mindfulness. And we'll... um, one thing I wanted to mention, which I, I think I briefly touched on, but it's, it's something I think you'll enjoy, is that be very careful about translations. Not that they're wrong, but that they're incomplete. So um, after three or 4,000 years of uh, Indian meditative religious tradition, words can have 10, one word can have 10 different meanings depending on context. Change is depending on the tradition. T- change is depending on the textual or the way the teacher is framing it and so on. You have to know this. So what happens is, when you get introduced to a new culture, you get introduced to a new study, you latch on to one word. And, and what happened is, when uh, the Buddhist meditation texts and, and uh, the teachings of Buddha were translated first in the 1880s, 1870s, mostly by Brits and Germans, the word that got translated for the Pali Sati, S-A-T-I, was chosen by Rhys Davies as mindfulness because there's a tradition in the English language of mindfulness. That's the word he picked. So beware. It's not a bad word, but it's now the word that we commonly use and it's pretty much the only word. But there's other words. So you see other translators using words like awareness and they go, people go, well, what's the difference between awareness and mindfulness? Well, the person's using the same Sanskrit or Pali term. Then you see some translators that, you know, no, from the Abhidhamma or from the meditational insight point of view, the word sati really mostly means memory. So they translate it, sati is memory, not mindfulness. Then another translator, you know, from whatever they've learned in their tradition and so on, goes, no, 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 uh, sati really in this context means attention attention of the mind. Um, other ones. Inspection. The word inspection is a very valid translation for mindfulness. Recollection is a common translation for mindfulness, for, for sati. So we have uh, mindfulness, we have awareness, we have memory, we have attention, we have recollection, um, retention, memory, so on. So all these are valid translations for the word sati. So please remember that mindfulness is only one of many different words that could be used. And actually, sati encompasses all those terms. Memory, attention, mindfulness, being mindful. But mindfulness does not, in the English usage of mindfulness, does not incorporate the scope of sati. So people then latch on to the meanings that they look up or they're given, but actually miss entire body of the scope of mindfulness. This is very important.
So just as a, as a point of history, uh, understand that mindfulness is not just mindfulness. It's in some way, when you get serious about the meditation teaching of Dharma, then you want to use the Pali term or the Sanskrit term. Why? Because it means five or six different things, and then you get a flavor of when, when to use it. So a teacher may say to you, you know you need to increase your, your sati, but they might actually mean memory. You need to increase your sati. They might actually mean presence. You may need to increase your, or, or do something with your sati. They might mean actually uh, recollective ability, which is also memory. So people go, no, no, I've heard this, because I've actually uh, heard this reveal. No, 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 mindfulness is bare attention, staying in the present. I go, really? Yeah, yeah. But it's, in terms of the vast corpus of teaching, it's only one aspect, and it always, always has been one aspect. So you have to see it from all these different aspects, tied together, uh, not as separate, and say, okay, awareness is something different than mindfulness. Oh, mindfulness is something different than retention of, of uh, information. Oh, um, a good memory or memory, ability of memory, is something different. So you have to bring all these uh, together. That's important. So one of the things you want to do, as, it, as the Buddha said, you want to identify the qualities of sati, know it's present, uh, like bliss, know it's present, when it's present, what are its different qualities, and be able to identify it so you can nurture it. And that's a very important word. So it's not, it's not good enough just to have an experience. You want to nurture that experience. You want to feed that experience. You want to know the laws of how that experience works. So for instance, you probably won't make too many discoveries about reefs unless you get near a reef. And be complaining that you're not really seeing much of the reef because you're not getting into the reef. I know that sounds funny, but... So, for instance, a person may be meditating and want to experience certain things, but there's really little chance because the environment is not sustaining for those experiences. It's going to be very hard. You're not going to the right country. You say, well, it's all mine. Yeah, well, maybe if you're a very experienced meditator, it's all mine. It is. But why would you fight when you can go and know what the right environment is? So you need to have an idea of what are the, the good qualities and how do they, do they come up. Now one thing that I've been giving out as an exploration to a lot of people because of so many people having depression, or bouts of depression, or the blues, and so on, uh, is, uh, and this has to do with memory, recollection, presence, and detail, which is tied up in recollection. So recollection also means the ability to discriminate detail. So we have today uh, people, maybe always been, I think probably has been, that are wired in such a way that they uh, recall the unfortunate things of a day, but they don't actually recall the positives. It's true. Or they actually, when you ask them detail, even about the negatives, it's a mess. They really don't have good recollection even of the negatives. It's a feel of something that happened, which becomes negative. But all the good moments that happen during the day are not recollected. And once this begins, 
it can be difficult to get out because the pattern, the map for focusing on negatives and, and uh, discerning negatives uh, and then missing the entire scope of the day um, gets quite serious for people. So one, if you want to try something uh, out, it's very good, is to, um, at the end of the day, see how many um, positive things that you did or were involved with, that you enjoyed and did, and they were good, that you did, and start to increase your recollective ability of the good. Not vague. You see, when you come from a writing culture, uh, it's good to write things down because when you're not, when you're from a writing culture, the chances are your memory is not very good. If you were from an oral culture, it's quite possible you could remember almost everything that happened plus the dialogues from morning till night. Most of us can't do that, right? That's simply because we haven't been raised that way. But think about whether you focus, this is a basic level of sati, of, of, of mindfulness. Do you spend your day focusing on the positives or is it predominantly the negative or a balance? And do the negatives vanish or do they keep popping up? Which, which one is it? That's, that's where you really have to, have to start. Um, otherwise, you're going, well, I'm meditating. That was, a good, that was a good hour. But you know, some people, when you ask them, how is the meditation? They will focus. It's fantastic taking meditation reports for now 30 some odd years of my life. People come in, the first thing they focus on is, oh, how's it going? All bad. So it takes me 20, 30 minutes sometimes, mm -hmm. like a good therapist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell me one good thing. Well, this and that and this and that and this. Oh, man, I had this great dream and on oh, this and oh, oh, by the way, my whole morning was spent in a vivid daywa realm. <laughs> But it was a bad day. Yeah, it was a really crummy day. Oh, so the morning was spent in a really lovely, light-filled, radiant state. But because the afternoon wasn't so good, then your day wasn't good, you see? This, this, is, this is so common now. So I would say the majority of people that come in and give a meditation report is, I, first of all, I always hear the negatives, and I usually often stop. Anything positive at all? Anything? Yeah, well, how come that's on the bottom? Why not start with the positives? So take a look at your being without beating yourself up, because another Western preoccupation is what's your focus? Where's your, where's your mindfulness? Is your mindfulness coming from I spot the negatives? My detail of uh, my detail world is, a neg is, is covered in a neutral or a negative tone. Or my day is actually covered in a positive tone with some blips, some bleeps, some interruptions that aren't really so hot. But I move on to the positive. This is essential. You should get to know the style and face the style by which you're processing data. If you were a, if you were a computer technician or robot technician, you'd be in there rewiring the robot, wouldn't you? Yeah. 
robot has a problem, is every time it sees something, it focuses on the negative side, it doesn't focus on the positive side. Or it doesn't turn the negative to a positive. Sensation gets turned into a negative, instead of gets turned into positive. It's a howling sound. No, it's just sound. It's a disturbing sound. No, it's just sound. How many moments of that during the day are occurring? So remember what I said about, about, about um, experience. All experience is biochemical. We, we know that for sure. So every time you, you think in a certain way, you secrete in a certain way. You fluidize, I make up words, you know, fluidize in a certain way, and that becomes your, your feel. And nobody ever told you, when you were a little kid, that how you think is what you're going to become. An envelope, a structure of what you'll become. How you see the world. For one person who steps in elephant poo on the Serengeti, it's awful. For another person, they'll spend the next five or six years studying the ecology of elephant poo. They're very happy they stepped in it. You might go, hmm, look at those larvae. wonder which larvae they are. So when we talk about the inner aspect of mindfulness, which is the energy aspect, the prana aspect, the aliveness aspect of, of, of mindfulness, as many things as, is where's your attention going? Are you even interested in your organism, uh, you're not your organism, your, your ego, ego formations, are they interested in the positive, in the bliss? They may not be, in fact. They may be so programmed from a life of focusing on the negative or the gray, the neutral gray, that you're actually not really, unless it's a big wow, too interested on the little blisses. Makes, makes sense? You need something very big to get you going. So you need cocaine when you get up, or you need heroin, or you need something big to get you going when you get up. Instead of just go, wow. Or you need a, a reef that's full of really flashy coral and flashy fish. Otherwise, you're bored. Why? Because you can't get up and look at the detail. Now, this isn't coming from the top of my head. Well, it is coming from the top of my head, but this is very common. This isn't made up by Lama Mark. This is so common and pervasive today that when you're habituated to the wow, whether it's television, radio, radio, <laughs> iPod, uh, iCasts, whatever they're, podcasts, then you're always looking for the wow. And it's pervasive. So before you beat yourself up, go, you have to get to know your conditioning. And, your, and the conditioning of most Westerners is shopping wow. More stimulation, next better stimulation, over and over and over again. So meditation, which is very still, 
is what are you looking for automatically, which may actually be not the heart of meditation. Bliss is not the heart of meditation. Great bliss is. Bliss is not. Now, for some people, this is very sad news. Because they're coming to meditate, or they're coming to a retreat, and what they want is like a great coral reef. They've heard about it, and they want to see the big fish. But when you go up to two or three inches away, oh, sorry, you know, 10 or 20 centimeters away from the coral reef, and you see all these different colors and little plants and little things, it's not very emotionally interested, these little things. But all of a sudden, when there's a stingray, or there's an eagle ray, or there's a whale shark, as long as this room, or a big um, bay of, of jellyfish, then it's like, whoa! But, but that's not your fault. It's because that's simply the culture you got raised in. Another culture, you, you get raised, you're malnourished. <laughs> you're dying of parasite diseases. You've got other problems. This problem is a parasite, which is shop till you drop, consumerism at any cost, support the industry by consumerism. And it's not, you know, people pick on consumerism, but actually what it is, is mental shopping for the next high. So automatically, just think of how this works, automatically you come to the study of Dharma and someone says meditation, not, Dharma's not important, you know, it's meditation that gets people. If I put Dharma as a title, people say, so when are we going to meditate? Well, they're inseparable. They're totally inseparable. So now think of the consumer coming before the teacher They've got 20, I'll look at the youngest you now, 20-something years, 30-something years, 40-something years, 50-something years, 60-something years, 70-something <laughs> years of daily um, uh, training. Training. That's, your, that's the major training of a Westerner. I have some beautiful quotes, by the way. They're not right beside me, but some lovely quotes from these, this book on the art of natural history, on what, what has happened with consumerism and how that affects the brain, how it actually changes how you see the world. So now what you bring to the teacher is that cultural model and nothing else. You can't see outside that cultural model. It's not your fault. It's your responsibility to come out of it, but it's not your fault. So when you come to meditation, everything tells you from when you were one years old, because marketing starts on children at about one years old or earlier. Yeah? It does. Don't, don't think this is made up. It does. Billions and billions of dollars are spent to market and teach kids how to buy at a very young age, to bug their parents, really, for toys and candies. So by the time you come to study meditation dharma, the teacher better satisfy you. The dharma better be flashy enough to satisfy you. The meditation 
better hold your interest, like a really incredible coral reef, or you're not interested. You're simply not interested. That's not your fault. It's simply, that's the major training of a Western person. It may sound harsh, but in the same way, you can go to another culture and say, listen, it's not your fault. This is the way you were conditioned. It's not the Gregorian's fault that it waves in the water calm like this. It's built that way, you know? Built that way. So the first thing to ask, as a good natural history um, scientist of the mind, is the word meditation what it really is? Is bliss what meditation is for? Is mindfulness why you meditate? You, you see, it's a very important goal. And so, um, for years, a long time, uh, and this is this is classic in the in the uh, Vajrayana traditions of Mahamudra and Zogchen, um coming out of India, it's always said the view, imparting the view to students of why you meditate of why you actually study Dharma is more important than even the meditation. You start view, con uh, conduct, view, and meditation. You must have the view. Actually, view, conduct, and meditation. You must actually have the view. Otherwise, every time you sit down or stand or move to meditate, there's something in the back of your being going, when's it going to happen? When's the big thing going to happen? When's the experience going to happen? When, in fact, that was never taught that way. You know that. I don't know if you know that, but it's never taught that way. That's a, that's, a, that's a predominantly Western thing. It's never been taught that way. I would ask you, what's happening during your meditation? Well, I had this experience. No, no. What happened for the 50 minutes of your meditation? Well, I had this experience. That's not the answer I'm looking for. What was the ecology of your meditation? What was it like for 50 minutes or 40 minutes? Were you bored? Yes. Well, that's good. That's, the, that's a state that you had. Now you can discriminate states. So we have to ask, what's the purpose of meditation? And in the Buddhist tradition, from the very beginning, it's always been about coming to freedom, real freedom. Freedom from conflicting emotional states that cause harm to your own being, harm to others, and keep your mind from being pristinely awake, compassionate, open, vital, vivid, and so on. Go on with a long, long list. How are we going to get there? But if it's about coming to meditation as a consumer, it's very difficult. So students become difficult because they want something the teacher then is going to have to invent for them as a candy to come out of a burning house. Because they're actually unsettled to be able to watch daily activity, to, to watch 
the coral reef really how it is instead of the big, uh, you know, I want to see big sponges. I want to see big coral. I want to see, like, the big fish. I've, I've heard this, actually, on boats. When are we going to see the big fish? When are we going to see the sharks? When are we going to, you know, can you take us to the really good site? Um, but have you paid attention to all the little things happening on the reef? Are you fascinated by spending an hour with uh, one fish? What's that little fish, what's that little damselfish doing? That little LBJ damselfish, that little brown jobby that has no flashy colors, what's it up to? How about that drab um, rubber sponge? Looks like kind of brown rubbery stuff, all squishy and rubbery. It's not very flashy, not red, it's not yellow, it's kind of a brown, gooey kind of thing. What's it up to? And there's a lot of it. You see? It, it does. It refers back to bliss, but a different kind of bliss. So I am, I'm getting to your questions bit by bit. But I, we have to go, we have to start uh, at a fundamental level of misunderstandings that have crept in uh, that is not your problem, it's what you've been sold. Most of your information is sold to you, right? Sold to you. So you buy information. College, school, university, uh, Dharma courses, uh, books. You, you, you get sold information. You, you, you buy information. You do. And you sell information. For a consultant, we, we sell information. People buy it, and they're supposed to use it. But it may not actually show the whole picture. Or maybe a partial picture. Or it may have come out of a tradition that is not appropriate at the moment for those people. So anyways, I want to come back. This exercise, if you wish to try it, would be good for quite some time, maybe a couple weeks or a week, uh, every night or maybe longer, especially if you're having problem with detail and detail about the good, is keep a journal, uh, a separate little booklet or somewhere, where you detail what you did and what you participated in and what happened that was good. So I'll give you an example. You can, you can have a, a conversation with someone and one thing in the conversation pisses you off or triggers a negative emotional reaction. But did you focus on all the good things that happened in that conversation? All the good things in the email? Or just one? Did you focus, like today, we had some blowing winds, yes? But someone might say, well, yeah, it was kind of an overcast day, wasn't it? But somebody will say, but you know, we had some beautiful bright spots. And actually, some calm periods. We did? Now, I've, I've been with people who go, we did? When? Their, their, uh, their nervous system is not trained or has stopped, has stopped picking up the glow and the beautiful parts of life a day. It's now focusing on. So be careful. So one place to start with mindfulness, which is really essential, uh, is to know how your being is operating. Not your organism, but your, your conscious, if you want, your ego being. What has it been trained? Don't blame it on mummy, daddy. Don't need that. We don't even know, need to know where. 
We don't need to blame it on Western society. Just fundamentally go, what is it that I focus on in the day? What am I driven to look at? What am I driven to study? What am I driven to, to do in the day? It's fundamental. And one of the reasons is the Buddha was very clear about enlightenment. He said, um, when he was asked, what is enlightenment? He said, um, I know the wholesome from the unwholesome. Actually, technically, I know uh, um, somanasa from domanasa. I know uh, pleasurable mental formations from unpleasurable mental formations. You go, well, everybody does. As it turns out, very few people do. You, th- you think you do because you've got a, a mind. You think you've got a mind. But actually, once you start to really meditate, you will find out and study Dharma and practice. You'll go, I'm actually very confused as to whether my states are positive, neutral, or actually negative. And many, many people have come to me after many years of study and said, you know, I always thought I was bright, or I was, my mind was bright, but I'm dull. Or, you know, I always thought I was kind of a happy person, but I'm actually an aggressive little beast. I'm actually a mean, aggressive beast. Oh, I love when that happens. Not because it's humorous for me, but I know they're actually liberating. You know, I spend a good part of my day in greed. Or they wake up and realize, I'm just jealous. My mind's filled with jealousy. Or it's, it's poisoned by pride. Everything I do, uh, or every conversation I start, is about pride. Or about jealousy or about um, uh, doing somebody in. I was once, I was once on a freighter um, where there's very few passengers. Five, five passengers, which meant we sat at the table, at the, with a captain's table, every day for almost three months. Two and a half months? Yeah. From Newcastle to Samoa. Every day, three meals a day, and uh, there was more uh, of a certain culture than there was of Canadians. I was the only Canadian, and the dialogue used standard in the every meal was to put someone down from a certain country. This is the sparring match of putting someone down and sparring, 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 sparring in a very vicious way. And it's normal. It's considered to be normal. So if you pointed that out, they'd say, what are you talking about? This is, this is how we have fun. This is, our, this is the way we converse. But it's, it's a, it's a, um, it's a put-down. It's a cha- always a challenge, always a put-down. You have to be good at it. If you come from certain schools, I won't say where, a certain country, you're trained to have sparring matches, uh, which appear to be normal speech, but are actually sparring matches the whole way through. You don't know that you've been cut up with razor blades until after the meal when you're bleeding on the floor. Yeah. So when, when people talk about bare attention as mindfulness, remember that the Buddha gave out in his time and in the tradition of meditation in Southeast Asia, there are many more mindfulness meditations than watching the breath. 
That's only one of ten classic mindfulness meditations. Only one. Interesting, eh? Only one. Which one is taught the most? Almost always breath. Mindfulness is breath. People tell me, oh, you're going to teach uh, mindfulness. You're going to teach us breathing, right? No, actually, I'm giving a course on generosity. Oh, well, I, I think I'd like to do a mindfulness course. Well, wait a minute. The Buddha taught uh, my, mindfulness of generosity as a major meditation. And he did say, if you don't have that, then all the rest of the meditation is corrupted. Awakening doesn't happen. Oh, okay. But it's not taught. So not to know where your flavor of your being and how you at least engage with the world and take in data and give out, interact, whether it's negative, neutral, or positive, means that there's not a hope at all, according to Buddha, and he was a very perceptive being, of becoming liberated, really free, because that is where your consciousness is operating. So think about it. Not to know whether your states are positive or negative constitutes enlightenment, but he means all the time. And he means the discrimination of other beings to know whether their states are actually negative or positive or covered over in either polite conversation or affectation, whatever it is. Does that make sense? You have to know what's building your being. You know, you look at these reefs and you, 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 I think you all know, right, that the most of the reef is built by what? Coral, right? Coral. We know, and we also know it's coral, uh, coral reef building that builds reefs. So uh, damage the coral, we're going to look at coral polyps in a bit. This is a good way. The skeleton of a reef. All this life on a reef is around um, two organisms, basically. The ecology is around two organisms. What was called, it's not an animal. Nidarian was called a long time ago, um, and a protest called the dinoflagellate. These two creatures, when they die, uh, the creatures on the reef die. So what keeps you going? What, where are you? What are you building? You know, if you look at this um, uh, uh, coral over here, it has a certain structure. What is your fundamental structure? Wholesome, unwholesome, or a gray neutral. That, that doesn't mean equanimity. That means neutrally gray, walling off the universe. And it's going to take what kind of activity to find out. It's going to take ever more refined attention to detail and ever more refined attention to the moment, to moment to present phenomena, to be able to discern clearly whether the mind states and the physiology are actually building a beautiful structure or actually damaging the structure. Does it make sense? Actually secretly damaging the structure, taking the life energy out, sapping the lifeblood, sapping the life energy, sapping the clarity, sapping the brilliance, sapping loving states, sapping... Whenever a loving state gets going or a blissful state, whap. Something comes in and... Hmm? Or you're having a lovely day, you feel good, 
and you just want to have that extra bag of potato chips. And then you go, ugh. Or you have a conversation and it gets soured. Or you have an internal dialogue and it gets soured. Or you do something, you walk too long. I can think of a million things. Something too long, too short. In other words, sabotage. Are you sabotaging life energy? Are you sabotaging uh, brightness and awakeness and love? Or are you building it? Are you learning how to, uh, and are you actively working to cultivate it as you would grow your garden? Do you poison your garden? Do you rip out, you know, you're looking for the weeds and you pull out the, the seedlings that you're trying to grow because you're not looking? Are you putting toxic chemicals in? Are you using uh, half-made compost? Do you know the nutritive conditions that lead to a awakening life? Or are you trying to get a life that's full of cool moments? Shopping life. Do you know what I mean? A shopping life. I hope all of you can go to bed eventually without any detail and just go, that was an amazing day no matter what happened. In other words, it's a, it was a beautifully wondrous day no matter, even if you were on a ship and your ship sunk and you lost all your belongings. That was a wondrous day. Why? You just feel great inside because we're on for another adventure to build another discovery. Or is it the world has crumbled, it's the end, it will never get better, it will maybe get worse. You know, it's called misery guts. My mother used to call it misery guts. Great. It's exactly what it is. Misery guts. Misery guts. Misery guts is a person that dwells all day in negativity. It's wrong. It's bad. It's going to get worse. The weather's never going to get better here. You know? If anything, the cockroaches will multiply. <laughs> it's going to be damp. The sand flies will become more. You know. Uh, uh, and then poison everybody else. Yeah? So remember that there are sociologists today that study, that study emotional states as viral, epide, epidemiological invi, uh, viral infections. They use the same mathematics and the same models to map emotional spread of infection in organizations and in communities by someone who commits suicide, someone who is a hate monger, someone who is depressed. One depressed person in a room spreads their depression like a virus. So for instance, you know I, I, I had a problem with my computer. Lydia. He goes, oh, and a problem with my bed. My bed's too soft for what I like. And then on and on and on and on. By the time five minutes goes by, the person you're talking to feels sick. It's like... They've now taken on the gossip. They've now taken on the poison because the person's anxious and wants to unload it. That's called gossip. Let me unload my anxiety into you. Fill you up so you have it. I feel better. 
for a little while. The hands are going up. I know, I know. There's people writing now about how gossip's good in organizations. We should all be participating in gossip. In organize a healthy thing. It's not. It's dangerous. It's awful, awful stuff. Anyway, so I'll, I'll get on to your, your questions at home. So if you want to know about a place to start with mindfulness, are you bringing that basic patterning? Don't even, you don't see the beautiful thing in insight. This is insight meditation. You don't need any stories. You don't need to know who, which parent did you in. You don't need to know whether it was school or boarding school or university or your nanny or your housekeeper or your dog or a previous lifetime. You, you don't need that at all to do this. You simply need to know what builds your being, not the story. That's mindfulness. Otherwise, you're lost. A story will never help you, by the way. Stories don't help you. A good story that a Dharma teacher tells does, because it should always point to freedom. But a story about your past, if you've ever really watched it, may make you temporarily feel better, reduce your anxiety, but the same story is going to come back up again. Because it's not satisfactory. You're going to have to find out the next life before that, and the next life before that. And when you got stepped on and you were a worm, Right in the Paleozoic, when you were a worm in the Paleozoic, or well, no, that's, that's right But when you were a worm in the Eocene era, and a, and and a, and, a, and a bird stepped on you, and you are crushed, that's what's given you this crushed feeling ever since. I know that sounds absurd. Where where are you going to stop? All beings get crushed. Which story do you want? Or are you going to end it? By building uh, a beautiful structure, you end it. By continuing to build an unwholesome structure, you don't end it. You simply feed it. That's your story. So when it comes to liberation, it's what you feed. Where's the feed? Where's the nutrient? Just as you grow a garden, most time you ask, what do you feed your garden? Does it get enough sunlight? Does it get enough rain? Does it get too much rain? Right? Is it in the right spot? Does it get too much shade? Does it get too much light? And so on. Then you have answers. So at the most primary level, you need mindfulness of what builds you. How, how are you being built? Otherwise, every time you come to meditate, that same pattern, and I'm not talking about psychotherapy. You don't need any stories. You just need to get it and see it and start changing it. Start coming and doing something like this and spending 14 days together on a coral reef and studying Dharma and investigating is probably one of the most wholesome uh, awakening things you can do because it's, it's, if you immerse yourself in that all day, you're, built, you're going to build a beautiful structure. Hopefully you'll get the feeling of doing more of it and more of it. Whether you're working or not working, it doesn't matter. You can do it. So when we talk about mindfulness, you have to get down to the fundamentals. It may not first be about meditation. 
because if that's your states and the what you're the nutrient states that you're bringing into meditation, most of your meditation session will be that. I guarantee it. Whatever you do as a pattern of your daily life is what you're going to do in a meditation retreat. I guarantee it. I'll wager ten or thirty thousand dollars and no problem winning it. How you are in daily life over the majority of time is exactly what you're going to bring into your retreat. Now, when you meditate for an hour a day, you sometimes get lucky. I'm now answering your question. Sometimes you get lucky because of biorhythms. You sit down on your bum and you hit the right biorhythm on the right day with the right food that you ate with your lovely uh, partner saying lovely things to you, good emails, good corn chips the night before, a good night's sleep, you sit down and you go, whoa, man, this is cool, like a good golf shot. Yeah? <laughs> Everything was right for the good golf shot. And you go, that was, that was amazing. That was, that was lovely, you know? That was, that, was, that was a lovely, delightful meditation. But reproduce it. Reproduce it. So you see that the attitude's wrong. That's like saying, well, you know, I had a good coral reef uh, snorkel. You, you know, spend time with professional biologists. It's lovely. Or natural historians. They go out and in the most miserable, god-awful weather, in mucky, awful conditions, and always discover something they've never seen before. It, it's great. It's absolutely great. I've had some of the greatest times in my life um, mineral collecting, doing natural study, nature studies, all kinds of things um, in a lab where it's going all wrong and we make great, we great, make great discoveries. Uh, and, and natural scientists, uh, the real good ones, are very good at that. Because they're, 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 it doesn't matter how bad the day is. The chances are they're going to bring something back because their attention is so good to refine detail. In other words, in the normality is something that you're not seeing. So here's a koan you can use. is Every time you go on the coral reef, every time you go in the forest, what is it that you're not seeing? And know that there's about a million things of detail. It's seeing right before your eyes, right before your hearing. You're just not seeing it. That's why it's always good to go out with experts. Go, good to go with someone much better than you. Bird watching, golfing. Uh, good to go with good golfers. I used to go out with really good skiers sometimes. They take me out, expert skiers in, in Roslyn. They say, come on with us. Come on, it won't be hard. won't be hard. <laughs> it's a mogul tree expert run. And I'm dead within, you know, 15 minutes. I'm absolutely wiped, lying in the snow, going, <gasps> come on, come on, get up, get up. You know, on the next tree, the next log, the next giant mogul, the next drop-off, boom, like this. But you know what? The next days, you realize, man, have I gotten better. They really worked you until you were dead, like dead. And then they, ha, <laughs> you know, the good day. That was good. That was easy for them. Deep snow, you know, deep powder, and you're... Lying there going, I've got no muscles left. Come on, come on, come on. It's all friendly. And um, 
Two days later, three days later, you're skiing going, wow, this is remarkable. So it's actually good to go out with people, do things with people that are actually better at that than you, not because they're, they're, you're, you're going to lose, simply because you, you get really good by being um, pushed uh, beyond your limits. You really do. You really do. If it doesn't kill you, it's, you know it's, it's, it's okay. If it doesn't kill you, it's, it's all right. It's good. It's good for you. So what I'm doing right now is I'm going, because you asked the question about bliss and meditation, uh, I, I'm going to uh, purposely and classically, uh, hopefully, demolish uh, maybe some of your views about meditation because it's needed. And probably every few weeks it's needed. Why? Because the view of when you sit to meditate, if the view, that means more than the intellectual capacity, but the feeling of what it's all about is strong, then the meditation folds very, very different. If you're not looking for bliss, you're not looking for it, it doing something for you, but a study, a natural history study of the mind and what's freedom, it totally changes. It can be the most boring meditation, absolutely absolutely bored out of your mouth. Everyone bored out of your mind in meditation? Who's been bored out? Silly. Bored, crazy. That becomes your meditation. That's what you're studying. Utter boredom of humankind. Humans get bored. They get so bored, they fall asleep. They get so bored, they get very cranky. You must look at that. That is your meditation. So as the great practitioners of meditation have said, uh, the Zogchen Mahamudra practitioners have said, whatever your mind is, is the meditation at the highest level. If you can't recognize that you're doomed because you're always looking for the shopping channel. You're not practicing natural history, you're practicing the shopping channel. You may as well be, go watch the shopping channel. Which is pretty interesting to watch the shopping channel. There's a natural, someone's probably actually doing a PhD thesis at this moment on the shopping channel. I find it fascinating to watch. The lingo, the words, how they package the very badly cut aquamarines in a very flawed setting. Utterly amazing. It's like selling snake oil. This is terrific. I was, there was two questions here. Are they are they gone? Have they evaporated? You mentioned one thing about the, the covering up at some point of negative thoughts with appearing to to be in a good yeah. a good state. Yeah. Um, in terms of discernment of of what you mentioned originally about whether you're identifying the positive, pleasurable, the unpleasurable. Mm. It seems like culturally there's a whole confusion around, I'm fine, when inside. Yeah. You know, if you could maybe mention yes, yes. So, so you, you, you must see that, that you're culturally conditioned. Don't need the story. Don't need to put it down. But you see that attitude and you change that. Uh, there is one thing good about a British stiff upper lip. 
is that uh, you must watch that you don't poison other people. You have an obligation not to poison other people. So if you are feeling miserable, I believe, as, as Namjoon Rinpoche, and he spent a lot of time in England, is put on a br stiff British upper lip and walk on. And don't infect everybody and say, you know, I'm really having a... So there is side, that's that side of it. But to repress and suppress uh, and bury your feelings culturally or through conditioning, this is a problem. Because what you're doing is you're, you're then... You're then uh, that conditioning then doesn't know really what's going on. It's playing a game. And when the game is played long enough, you forget that you were playing a game. Or you're, you're playing a game with yourself and other people. You don't want to spread how you feel, you're, you're feeling. And you say, yes, I'm feeling very well. And you may not be. A, a healthy being will, will have their guts hanging out. And when you ask them, how are you feeling? They'll say, actually, you're fine. Not, not to, to spill on you. Maybe f with further investigation, say, actually, I'm dying, but that's okay. How are you doing? A healthy being would say, well, they'd be concerned about you first. Hmm. Some people I've met in hospitals who are very, very sick and dying, the first thing they want to, you know, they're beautiful, beautific states. No, no, how are you doing? Don't worry about me. How are you doing? Are you okay? Are you okay? No, but how are you? You're in the hospital. I'm fine. How are you? I'm okay. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. No, it's really true. Healthy. 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 Doctors know how I'm doing. How are you doing? So, so, but that's not a British stiff upper lip. That's not repression. That's simply compassion. That's simply love. Love for other beings before your, yourself. And if you have the eyes to discern, you'll see, uh, actually, they look great. Uh, they, they, they say they're great, but actually they're very sick. Not very well. But you can still smile. You can still be happy. Or you can be very miserable. And go, you know, I am really miserable, but okay, let's, 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 let's move on. I'm actually dying, but let's move on. Yes. So no, no, no suppression, acknowledgement, but no public. You know, the, in the Western, since the 1960s, there has been a fad to emote and dump your emoting all over other people. This is sick. Sorry, but it's sick. It's sick. It's, it's not compassion. It's not loving. Um, keep it relatively private. It can be for your therapist. Uh, it can be for your Dharma teacher occasionally. Um, but um, uh, learn to be mindful of the states. Uh, don't suppress them, but don't, don't, don't spread them. That's, that's poison. That's unwholesome activity. Unwholesome activity. It's a viral infection. Yes. I wouldn't know. So this, this oversharing of like how it's all it's all anxiety yeah. uh, in the sense of um, not obvious anxiety but underneath the organism uh, is doing inappropriate behavior it's not it's maladaptive behavior it's maladaptive thinking 
it's anxious about something. I mean, it's very German, it's true. Angst. This, the organism somewhere isn't happy. It's trying to figure out what's going on. Not, not only do scientists try to figure out what's going on, every human being is trying to figure out why. How to be happy. That's all. It's very simple. Human beings, every miserable human being wants to be happy. They just don't know how to be happy. So they try all kinds of things. They stab people. They poison people. They uh, create bad meals. They um, pollute. They do all kinds of things in pursuit or buy things they don't even want or don't need, but in pursuit of what? They simply want the anxiety to go down and be happy. Once you're so pervaded by anxiety, that's the state you know. So what you do is you take out the chessboard or the checkerboard and you simply all day long move pieces around the checkerboard, quelling, quenching. You know, I love that word, quenching. You know the word quench? To quench? To quench, to put out the light, to, to stifle the light. Uh, you go around on the checkerboard all day long or chess to maneuver how to quench the anxiety. That's all the day is. So when people go into retreat, their thoughts start going like fury. They often have heart racing, anxiety states. Why? Because they're happening anyways. Now they're magnified. They don't have the normal Western tools to quench the anxiety all day. The cafe, the television, the radio, the cell phone, the hobby, the game, the Game Boy, uh, the Xbox, the, um, the walk on the beach, the coral reef dive, the uh, jumping out of an airplane, uh, whatever it is. Most of it is in service of quenching anxiety. And it can be very low-level anxiety that is not apparent to the person, but is a disquietude. Where do you find that disquietude? In retreat. When you don't have a cell phone, when you don't have a laptop, you have a room and you're looking at your physiology. The disquiet comes out like bursts, sweating, paralysis, bliss sometimes, incredible bliss. And then crawling on your hands and oh God, I feel awful, not knowing why you feel awful. It's called withdrawal symptoms. Simple, classic, cold turkey from addiction to moving the chest pieces around when the anxiety uh, is strong. So, so when people ask me, what really is meditation? What are you teaching people? Uh, ultimately, or deeply, uh, how to be comfortable in your mental, physical skin naturally. That means a test I always give people say, say, well, what do you kind of, where do you see all this going? I say, where I, what I test people on is I want to see whether you can, for 12, 15, 16 hours, be like this. Completely comfortable in your skin. Your mind is at ease. It doesn't need anything at all except for what is. That's all. It has reached a point where it has come to great ease, which, by the way, is a great bliss. It's not blank. It's not dull. It's so bright. It's so effervescent. It's so loving. 
and yet it's absolutely still. And if a thought happens, that's no problem because the thought subsides. So how do you get there? To be comfortable in your skin, you're going to have to change your physiology. You know that within one or two hours, you're going to be itching, screaming to move, right? For some five minutes. The body's going to go through contortions. You will see that the, you'll, you'll know how to get your, your, uh, your heel behind your head. That's a joke, but you know what I mean? You will do everything. Breathing, you'll change your breathing, you'll change your posture, you'll, everything will... To do what? To stay present. To stay comfortable in your skin. It's physiological. It's a structural thing that must be uh, worked on. Otherwise, uh, look at a normal person, an anxiety, gently normal anxiety-ridden person who's not on antidepressants or, or anti-anxiety medication, which, by the way, today is very high. It can be in a retreat, sometimes 20-30% of all the people are on antidepressants or uh, um, serotonin inhibitors, all these kinds of things. It's so normal now. So absolutely normal. Because people aren't comfortable in their own skin. Wired, absolutely wired. So you're going to have to do something to come out of that heroin addiction, out of that uh, chessboard addiction for moving things around to get it all right. So it feels comfortable, the zone of comfortability. The best thing you can do for retreats is go to a place where you're not comfortable for liberation. Not quite comfortable, not awful, just not quite comfortable. Why? You're going to have to get through it and realize that wasn't so bad. That really wasn't so bad. I can, I can live with spiders in my bed every day. I had a retreat where I had spiders in my bed every day, and big ones sometimes. They'd sleep with me every day, and they'd make cobwebs all, they'd make spiderwebs all around me. And every day in a beautiful retreat center, you know, beautiful, glorious retreat center, I've got spiders in my bed every night. Doesn't matter how many take out, they want to come back and, and be there. They don't bite, they just are big, and they crawl around on you and that's just and you you're going to have to either you run or you go this is life this is the fecundity of life maybe next month they and they by the way and then a few months later they were less and less and less so it's all anxiety but, but you won't know how deep the anxiety is, the systemic anxiety, the organism screaming, until you give it enough time to let it go through its, its unbuckling, its uh, perturbations, its uncoiling, which sometimes is extraordinary bliss. It's blisses you've never had before. As it uncoils, you get these moments of no other place you want to be. 
And then an hour later, no place, I'd rather be any other place in the world but here. And, and the deeper you go in meditation, the more hours you do with focused attention, it can go change every half an hour, like that. Bliss, hell, bliss, hell, bliss, hell, bliss, hell, until eventually it starts to stabilize out. Or you can get a day of bliss and go, I'm enlightened now. And sure enough, two days later, the person is crawling to the meditation teacher going, I don't know what I did, but I think it's all over. I'm leaving. Yeah, but um, two days ago, you were enlightened, right? They went, I don't remember that. Yeah, no, two days later, you told me that you had a day of, like, amazing experience. It was an amazing experience. And usually the next day, they come and go, I'm blotto. I'm, I'm wiped out. It's not what meditation is about. It's, the, it's missing the point. The point of meditation is freedom based on discernment of states moving uh, your being to uh, more wholesome moments. And to, all, to do that, you're going to have to be a good bird watcher or a fish watcher or a sponge watcher or a coral reef watcher of the minutiae of your normal states. So you can see, that's good. I'm going to nurture that. That isn't very good. Stop that. It's enough, enough, enough. And then you start to build it more and more and more. If it's only about the moments of bliss, you're going to be in trouble. Because you're going to have to get meditations that are going to foment that more and more. Now, at the same time, because I want to address this question, it's a beautiful question. Why do blisses simply sometimes come on? Why do they just happen, even when you're not meditating? Because you don't have to be meditating. You can be having a beautiful cup of tea. You can be playing golf. You can be going for a walk. You can be on a coral reef. It simply has to do with the pervasive way in which you breathe triggers bliss. That gets me to the inner aspect of mindfulness. And I didn't want to go there today. How you, and now this is not Mark Weber's law, this is the law of, of, of all the yogas, this high yogic law. However you are breathing, which means energy, sensation, circulation you're being, is exactly how your mind state will be. Simple. If you remember that and understand that, whatever the energy balance in your being is, that is exactly how your mental state will be. Simple. Simple. That's it. No, no, you don't need more. That's it. That's it. How the breath, how the uh, breath sensation circulates through your body, through your mental body, is exactly how your mind will feel. Now, I'll give you an example. Has anybody ever had a massage here? I know it sounds like a simple question, but it's everybody, it's like the dive, the dive master says, can everybody swim? It's a very good question to ask. Everybody's had a massage. Who has had a massage and has felt tight and maybe a bit uncomfortable or not so loose, and somewhere halfway through or near the end or 
maybe right at the beginning, you go, oh my God, do I feel good. How many people? Everybody? Okay. Yep. Good. What happened to you? Does that mean that every time you want to feel good, you're going to have to go for a massage? That's not going to work, is it? But you could. But you'd find that if it's done every hour, you, you may not be feeling good every time you have a massage. So what happens in a massage, what happens for the person that goes jogging, where 20 minutes into jogging, or half an hour into jogging, I feel great, when the endorphins kick in? What happens to the person who jumps out of the airplane and says, you know, when I was in the airplane, I wasn't feeling great, but now when I jump out of the airplane with a parachute, I feel like I'm alive. Or the skier, or the diver, when they get underwater, they feel great. When they, feel, they play chess, they feel great. When they dance, they feel great. Right? Are you getting it now? So the biochemistry, uh, what's called breath, the prana flow, the, 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 the juice flowing through you, how that flows through you is exactly how your mental state will be. How you wake up in the morning in a bad mood, tired, uh, feeling good, is how you will see the world maybe before you have coffee or you have tea or you settle down or have a shower, yes? If you wake up and your chemistry is off and there's a, somebody out there going, shh, 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 you go, no, no, I can't stand it, like a, like a, like a hangover, yeah? That's your biochemistry. That's your brain chemistry. It's the ooze that you're filled with, and you can feel it. Yeah? You can feel it. That's exactly how you're going to see the world. That's the inner side. If that's the way your chemistry is, your prana is, then that's how your mind is going to be, and that's how your mindfulness is going to be. Anybody can experience bliss. All they need to do is take a, a really good breath doing something, usually doing something, or being very still. It actually doesn't matter what it is. And the pervasiveness of the oxytocin and the serotonin, yeah, and the endorphin, whatever other chemicals there are, will just pervade you and you'll go, the world is perfect. Have you had this experience? The world is perfect. The world is beautific, I am filled with grace, and then it vanishes. Right? That's right. But then what you try to do is do that same walk in the forest again. And it doesn't happen. Or you sit exactly at the same time at the day of meditation. It's exactly 8.03 in the, after, in the morning. What did I do wrong? Or the squash player, or the yoga um, disciple, or it doesn't matter what it is. They're all doing the same thing. They're trying to hit the perfect golf shot. But it's not about the perfect golf shot, it's about liberation. Is that, is that getting there? So not, not necessarily desperation, as you said, through mental body. 
that kind of through energy through mental body. Mental body, that's a fine energy body. It's very, very subtle to pick up. Many people, if you put an acupuncture, if not me, but if, you, if your acupuncturist puts an acupuncture needle in you, there's many people, one, who don't feel it, or number two, don't feel what it does to them, and number three, don't feel the meridian. Never. They just go, I don't get it. It doesn't... I think I feel better, but I don't know what happened. And uh, uh, I don't know what they mean by meridians. And yet for others, they, they can tell you exactly where the insertion point is, where it went to, what changed, what's the overall pattern, uh, everything about it. That's called the subtle energy body. Subtle energy body. So, for instance, some people, when I say, you know, when you feel very sleepy, do you feel that kind of drug flow through you? And they go, never. I don't know what you mean by that. I'm always amazed. I go, can't you feel that, that oozy feeling go over you? As if someone put an anesthetic into you and you're going... Or when you're in love, or when you have a beautiful meal. All those are chemical changes, which are the fine energy body, right, from, right through you. Or do you feel it in your belly? Can you feel it in your hands? Can you feel it in your, the bliss in your fingertips when you do fine work? Or do you feel anger or frustration? You see? Does your face feel flushed? Does your heart feel open and love? No. So some people are actually in that state, but they can't feel it. They dance. How are you feeling? Okay. But you look beautiful. Really? Your, the physiology shows up through their structure, but they don't even know it. So this level of fine energy, fine sensation, uh, it, it must develop a sensitivity for it. it. Must develop a sensitivity. So that's how the bliss happens. It is simply the chemicals got released under the right environmental circumstance because you breathed well, and a whole bunch of things got, came together, and there it is. Question is. The purpose of meditation is not to do that. The purpose of meditation is to be able, uh, now this is one kind of meditation, is to be able to be in a good state of settledness, but not necessarily in a high bliss, but an evenness, an evenness. Gratefulness, a grace, an, even, an evenness, a feeling of... It's good. It's good. Just good. Now, there are yogas. So if you want to know yogas for feeling blissed so far, like a million orgasms, there are yogas for that. And there are meditations for that. Because then at the high level, that becomes your number one enemy and your number one path. Because you're going to have to deal with bliss. That's another talk. So there are yogas and meditations where the bliss is extraordinary but you're going to have to have the foundation for it. And that becomes a vehicle for liberation because bliss is the biggest addiction of a human being. All human beings are wired for bliss, for, for uh, pleasure. That becomes the number one enemy to overcome. Or not to overcome, to transform. To transform. Otherwise, it's shopping channel, guaranteed. Okay, that's a few few words on that. And... But 
as soon as you recognize that feeling, it's gone. Because you're clinging to it. <laughs> it's just you recognize it, it's gone. The nature of meditation for liberation is maintaining or stabilizing non-clinging awareness, which is the natural state of the mind. Whenever bliss comes up as a body sensation or a mental feeling, and you jump after it, clinging comes up and you ruin it. You squash the beautiful orchid or the beautiful begonia, like that. It's that subtle. To remain in it, to dwell in it, requires unevenness. Unevenness of breath, unevenness of clarity, and evenness of love that doesn't jump after things. That's called equanimity. And then you'll see the bliss just stays there, but you're not jumping after it. It's just pervasive. I mean, all beings should be, be, get lots of soaking in bliss. They need it because it changes the organism. It's very healing. Bliss is very, very healing. But some people aren't really bliss types. They're dry types. It's okay. They're dry types. They're not bliss types. I think that's, I think that's lots um, today. There's worry here. There's agitation. It's getting dark. Well, because. 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 <laughs> dark, dark. But it also might get light again. In the jungle. It might, might just get light <laughs> I wanted to show you a living. This might be your only opportunity. Yes, a living, alive polyp doing its feeding. Would you like to see that? Yes, Let's go take a break. Let's share the merit. By this powerful activity of the... Of the Spreading and teaching of Dharma, may it lead to the cessation of suffering for all beings. Idante punyakamang asawaki wahangotu. Idante punyakamang asawaki wahangotu. Idante punyakamang asawaki wahangotu. And may all beings be healthy and happy, and may all beings be established in a continuum of pristine awareness, freedom, and the perfect union of wisdom and compassion. Now let's go let's go up and look at some polyps. Okay. Mm -hmm.